I know a moment ago that there was a text read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be readdressing that at some point later in our sermon time this morning. But it's certainly good that each of us have been blessed with a mindset and desire to gather today and to assemble as we are. I might take just a moment and make a comment about for a couple of weeks, a little bit of time, been somewhat hesitant to, to shake hands at the back just due to the fact of not wanting to encourage any hold up or those who, who would wish to, to move on. We don't want to encourage any illness, the sharing of that in any way that wouldn't be absolutely necessary. And I hope that you understand that. And it's just a desire on our part to not contribute in any way to, to that which could otherwise be unhealthy. But we are certainly thankful that we can come together and talk for a few minutes about the communion of Christ's body and blood. This introductory slide is one that puts before us our keen reminder how that everything we do in the name of religion, it's our desire to do it according to the will and according to the desire of approval of the God of heaven. For isn't it true that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks in the God and the Father by Him. That phrase of Colossians 3 verse 17 continues to remind us about our place and desire to ever have His authority for that which we do in the name of religion and in our interest of serving and following Him. One of the things we'll do then in our discussion time this morning is to reflect upon the Lord's Supper. I know that it's an integral part of our time when we come together on the Lord's Day. It is a time of incredible profoundness and incredible significance. But may we never allow that to slide from our thinking. The particulars of what men sometimes will set before us, may we never allow that to detract, to distract, and to cause that memorial to be less than what the Lord would have had it to be. Isn't it fair to say the church in Corinth had some problems in their observance of the Lord's Supper? I wonder what those were. And in fact, isn't it true that as Paul addressed that congregation, he highlighted to them the nature and character of the Lord's Supper. May I hope that you and I today can revisit the majesty, the beauty, and the absolute criticality of the Lord's Supper. Let's do that by first reminding ourselves of how that was established. On this slide that's before you, I merely have attempted to rehearse some of the matters connected to that set of moments wherein Jesus established this which we call the Lord's Supper. Isn't it true the Lord had taught rather directly that He had always done the Father's will? John 6, 38 had reminded us in which He Himself declared, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. As Jesus lived His life in conviction of what was the Father's will, there came a time not that long before His crucifixion in which we're about to read some of these events to follow. In John 17, verses 1 to 4, he had pointed out that he had desired to glorify the Father and that what he was doing was ever a desire to bring glory and honor unto the God of heaven. On that very occasion, which would have been a Wednesday night, he assembled with those twelve, and their desire was to observe the Passover. Now remember, the Lord lived beneath the Old Testament era and the Passover was still an expected matter of observance. Jesus assembled with them in that prepared place. But you may recall that during the course of that assembly and during the course of that observance, He did something unusual, at least from their perspective. He put in place a lasting memorial. 
He put in place this which was not a memorial to Moses, not a memorial to the matters in which the children of Israel left Egypt. It was a memorial to himself. In fact, on that slide that's before you, I direct your attention to Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. And in that set of verses we notice, speaking of Jesus, it says, He took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it unto them and said, This is my blood. I'm sorry, this is my body, which is given for you. He rather immediately pointed to the fact that this bread which he was then sharing with and which he was inviting them to partake of was a representative of his body. This is my body. Notice he didn't say it's like it. He didn't say it points toward it. He said it is it. Now you and I know rather well what the Lord was teaching. It was literally not his body, for his body was something different than what he was holding or what was present on that table. But it was a complete and symbolic representation of it. That which was to be a critical and powerful force reminding them of what his body was to undergo. For that reason, on that slide, I pointed you to this set, set of ideas. You and I know what was to happen in less than 12 hours from the time the Lord made this observation. Remember, as He observed that Passover celebration with them, it would have been just after sundown on Wednesday night. He was nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock the next morning. And over the course of that night, He was tried. He appeared before Pilate. And not only that, He certainly was led to appreciate the difficulty surrounding the terrible way in which His body was scourged, beaten. It would be easy to say that His body was ravaged, it was torn, it was mutilated. Blood would come forward from it on a number of places. A crown of thorns was pounded on His head that night. All the while, He said, This is my body, which is given for you. This message then, characteristic of that body, and the representation of it will take us, certainly, the Lord was using the unleavened bread that which was a part of the Passover celebration, and it was to be a lasting memorial of His body. You may notice in other texts, He would say it like this, Take, eat, this is My body, which is for you. The body that was going to be so terribly beaten and torn over the next few hours was to be a critical element in what would make the forgiveness of sins possible. It was given for them. Is it any wonder then when you and I reflect upon the Lord's Supper, it should be a very monumental matter, an incredible matter taking our mind to the scene of the cross and what certainly was going to take place just shortly after the Lord made these statements. However, that is at all. For on this next slide, you notice the Lord didn't stop in verse number 19. Verse number 20 goes on to say, Likewise also the cup after supper saying, This is my blood. This is my blood. Now you and I realize again that the shedding of blood was going to be a powerful matter and it's only in the shedding of that blood in which we understand remission is possible. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. We learned that certainly in Hebrews 9 verse number 22. This is the New Testament, my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it 
in remembrance of me. Oh, what a lesson. Now that night, you and I know that the apostles' minds, at least in some way, was a little bit scattered. For after all, they were shortly to witness Jesus arrested, handcuffed like a common criminal, and hauled off to appear before first Annas and then Caiaphas, and later as the evening went on. He, of course, appeared before Herod. He appeared before Pilate. And they mocked him, and they made fun of him, and they insulted him, and they even blasphemed him. And one by one, he in calmness and directness kept his composure. He didn't lash out against them. When, a, when the matter presented itself, he would speak the truth. You'll notice on that slide that's down before you. The Lord selected these emblems. Unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. These emblems, of course, have now stood the remarkable test of time for almost 20 centuries. They still are those matters that shall be set before us in a matter of minutes this morning. And as that takes place, how profound they are. Representative as that unleavened bread and as that fruit of the vine, not merely of those physical elements, but of the body and the blood of the Lord. As you close that slide with me, we learn something rather remarkable in Acts 20, verse number 7. Could I remind you of the language as it's presented there? That was, of course, on one of the missionary journeys of Paul. And as he arrived at this place, you and I know as Troas. It says in verse number 20 of that chapter that they gathered on the first day of the week. to eat the bread. They gathered there to participate in the Lord's Supper. A primary reason for their assembly. A primary thrust of the reason they had come together was to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now to be sure, they heard some preaching, and that verse will go on to explain that as well. And to be sure, they understood the nature of prayer. We see that in the verses that follow as well. But isn't it amazing they came together to break bread? May I submit to each of us a critical part, a very meaningful part, an unsurpassed element of significance in light of our assembly is the, is the matter of the Lord's Supper. You and I should approach it with profoundness, approach it with a mindset of diligence in due matter of what the Lord described. As you and I close that slide and turn to the next, we'll develop some of those matters using the language that Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. May I invite you again to turn back to that passage as I read again verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The Lord's Supper, in I suppose its finest way, is a direct matter of communion. Paul used that word here more than once in light of our participation in the Lord's Supper. May I again invite you to note verse 16, The cup which we bless, this cup which contains the fruit of the vine, Paul worded it like this. 
Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And similarly, that bread, that unleavened bread, that's a part of this powerful memorial. Paul would word it this way. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Twice he used the word communion. I've asked you to notice somewhat the definition of that idea. And the word as it shown to you and to me. That word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia. That word by its very force and thrust is such that it occurs about 20 times in the New Testament. Notice not all the forms are the same tense as this one. But that word has the following suggestions, the following meanings, the following utilities. I quoted from two Greek lexicographers in light of the meanings often connected to those words as they occur. One of them has this significance. It has to do with the relationship characterized by sharing that which is in common. Another lexicographer put it like this. It has to do with fellowship, association, community, and that which involves a joint participation. Needless to say, the whole idea of this word communion signifies a close connection. People that are sharing something. Individuals that have a powerful bond in common. Might I suggest then the Lord's Supper is an amazing pair of emblems in which we testify and proclaim to one and all that we share in communion, we share in common. But we do more than just that. You may see it on that slide that's down before you. Think about that bread for just a moment. That unleavened bread, which again we've already highlighted, but that bread which is spoken of in the following way. That bread that's broken, according to the very question, which was rhetorical in character that Paul raised, it's a communion of the body of Christ. You and I are sharing in some way in regard to that body of our Lord. Now I realize you and I have a body and it's not the same as He is. He had a physical body, it was nailed to the cross, and we realize the torture to which it itself was subject. But you and I are powerfully told. Verse number 17 again reads like this. For we being many are one bread. Notice, we, you and I, we are one bread. In the same way that we're partaking of that bread that's emblematic of the body of Christ, we are one bread and we testify and proclaim in remarkable character the fact of the Lord's death the nature of His body, and our presence, our membership in it. Aren't we told in other verses that the church is the body of Christ? Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. In that unforgettable set of verses, Paul reminded the congregation at Ephesus, and by inspiration all of us as well, the church is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Thus, hasn't Paul brought us full circle? We partake of the bread, sure enough, as emblematic of that precious and remarkable body of Christ. But in the same token, he would be, in the very next sentence, say, We are one bread. And as such, we proclaim the unity which ought to be characteristic of that body. Amazingly enough, in that verse, he goes on to say, We are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread.
The Lord's Supper is remarkable, isn't it? It's a challenge. It's a certainly a challenging thing. And this next slide will even extend that discussion like this. Paul would say to the congregation at Rome, one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. That one loaf, that one bread, that you and I are participating in shortly as the bread portion of the Lord's Supper, it's a testimony then to the grandeur of the Lord's body, which is His church as well, and helps us see the sweetness and beauty of the fact that every one of us members one of another. And therefore, this Lord's Supper really is a rich communion. We celebrate it with each other. And in that communion, we also celebrate it with Christ. Did Jesus Himself say, I will henceforth not take of this anymore until I take it new with you in my Father's kingdom? Matthew 26, verse 29. The Father's kingdom is the church. There's a very real sense in which when we partake of that bread, we not only take it with one another, we're all taking it at the same time, we are celebrating it at that same moment. But the Lord is, in a sense, taking it with us as well. As we honor Him in His kingdom, which is the body, namely the church, we are able to celebrate that powerful communion with one another and with Him. No wonder it's so meaningful. And no wonder it's so profound and rich. What about that fruit of the vine portion? The next matter on the slide is that one. Can I point each of us to that realization as well? In that same set of verses we just read, Jesus would say this, Likewise also the cup after supper say, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Another thing that, of course, links us so wonderfully together as those faithful to the Lord, we rest powerfully on, on the reality of having sins forgiven. We have enjoyed the matter of baptism. We have seen in it Jesus' blood washing our sins away. We've known the grace that comes through that event. And we, of course, give our attention to living faithfully unto the Lord. Communion. Paul would again ask it this way. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? We learned a moment ago then that as the church, we enjoy not only communion with one another as we partake of the Lord's Supper, but there's a communion with the Lord. Some of those same matters can also be noted as we approach the matter of the fruit of the vine. Paul asked it this way. Is it not the communion of Christ's blood? Christ's blood was shed. Christ's blood, of course, is shared. And that blood reminds us that we have, as individual Christians, enjoyed the blessings available from that blood. We've had our sins forgiven. And each day, as long as we live faithfully, 1 John 1, 7 tells us that blood continually and ongoingly cleanses our sins from us. We all enjoy that blessed benefit. But with it, could we not say, say this? By properly partaking then in that Lord's Supper, we partake of the wonderful benefits of Christ's blood, and we hold those up for one and for all to appreciate. Several verses that point us in that direction would be Romans 8, verse 6. 
as well as Galatians 2 verse 20. It's at that point I think we can at least make one observation. Sometimes there are those who ask, is it all right for a person who's never been baptized to partake of the Lord's Supper? Why would they want to? Of what significance would it be? They are not in communion with the Lord. And thus what thrust could these verses we just raise even have? If they are not in that communion, then to partake of it would not be, as we're about to see in a moment, consistent with their behavior, consistent with their walk in life. If it is the case, the Lord's Supper is a matter of communion. We need to be in communion with the Lord. Else why would His body and blood have that significance which these very verses suggest it must have? Amazingly enough, all of that translates us into the following place. Then when that set of moments arrives, wherein we have the privilege of observing the Lord's Supper, And may I point out that that name is scriptural. It is called the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 20. The Lord's Supper. Oh, what a feast it is. Oh, I know it's not a gigantic steak with a baked potato. And sometimes when you and I think about a physical feast, that might be what we think of. Or maybe we think of the Thanksgiving meal where a table is full of wonderfully prepared items. The supper that the Lord has prepared for you and for me, this supper which is so meaningful spiritually, consists of these two items. There is, of course, the unleavened bread, and there is, of course, the fruit of the vine. At this point, may I revisit with you 1 Corinthians 10, and notice a question that Paul raised about this. In verse number 21, Paul would ask it like this, Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord, and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. That's a strong assertion, isn't it? And to those individuals of the church at Corinth, Paul rather dramatically asked them this question, you cannot live like the devil through the week and then expect to come and take of this on Sunday. It just won't work. Your life needs to be a reflection, you see, of that which this communion is intended to convey. A life in which your life exemplifies the life Christ would wish of you. And as you partake then of this fruit of the vine and this unleavened bread, it is a reminder to yourself and to others of what your priorities are. On that slide, again, may I invite us to think about this verse. If our life is to be a reflection of communion that we hold so dear, a communion that's a vital part of that which we are, then again Paul says in verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils at the same time. But isn't repentance wonderful? There may have been a time I was drinking the cup of devils, but then I learned better. I made some changes. In repentance and obedience, I came to the point where I could partake then of that cup of the Lord. Each one of us can highlight the sweetness of that change and the place to which that's brought us in life. It might well be I've asked you also to note the following. The Lord's Supper is a very very dramatic and powerful proclamation. In fact, in the very next chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
May I ask you to notice verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim or show the Lord's death till He come. Every Lord's day, every first day of the week, we have the privilege of making a proclamation, not only to those near, but even to those who may not be so near, that there are things for which we stand and things for which we shall never be moved. Things that in fact involve the Lord's body and His blood and that we shall proclaim that until He comes again. Now you and I may long since be dead by the time the Lord returns. But we, during the time of our sojourn here in this life, we, without doubt, and we without compromise, shall determine to proclaim the Lord's death until He come. Some of the last thoughts on that slide then continue to be these. It is a profoundly significant memorial. Throughout the Word of God, you see, God has established several memorials, and the people of Israel knew about them. You may recall that every Sabbath, certain things were to be done. The first new moon of the month, certain things were to be done, Numbers chapter 10. There was a certain day in the year, the Day of Atonement, certain things were to be done. And these were to be memorials, things that were very significant. In the church today, this present New Testament era, the Lord's Supper is a fantastic memorial. It is to be observed, as you and I have learned, every first day of the week. And thus, we would never think about doing it once a month or once a quarter, or once a year. Those don't do justice to the text that the inspired apostle Paul has revealed. And you and I thus, every first day of the week, we thrill at the thought of partaking of this because it's a reminder of our Lord and a reminder of not only His body, but of His blood. As you close that particular slide with me, what does it mean then to you and to me? I hope that we'll never approach that time of the Lord's Supper and do so as merely some habit or something to take care of a few moments of a worship service on Sunday morning or perhaps again of the Sunday evening hour. It must be more meaningful than that. For if it isn't, some of the following sentences should weigh heavily upon our heart. I'd like to turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the very next chapter and allow Paul to discuss in more detail some of the issues facing the Corinthian church in their observance of the Lord's Supper. Beginning in verse 21, For in eating every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also He took the cup, when He had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. Wherefore, 
Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And Paul has pointed out that in that congregation at Corinth, there were some that were sick, not physically, but spiritually. And that sickness was in large part symbolic of the fact that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. You don't understand what it means, and in so doing, you haven't partaken of it properly. The wording again he used is, For this cause, exactly for this reason, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Some had died in that condition. Isn't that tragic? The Lord's Supper to you and me, May we never allow it to reach a point like that. But may we ever exert the diligence and effort to partake of it in a way that's mindful of that which the Lord described it to be. Emblematic of His blood and body. As you can see on that slide that's before you, none of us by our very nature are worthy of it. But that's not the word Paul used. He insisted that we partake of it worthily. That's an adverb, not an adjective. And in so doing, the manner in which we partake of it is key, and the Lord is watching us. We need to exert effort, diligence, to make sure we discern the Lord's body and His blood. Keep distractions to a minimum. Don't let our mind wander. Exert the effort to, in fact, not fall into the trap that was characteristic of some, apparently, in, in Corinth. The Lord's Supper is meaningful. And the Lord is observing as you and I partake of it. May we do so with honor, with respect. May we do so in a mindset indicative of some of these verses you and I have studied today. The Word of God identifies our worship as to be pleasing unto God. For after all, isn't it true? God is the Spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's certainly a beautiful part of our worship assembly. I trust as we partake of it that it will be a very meaningful, very profound, and a time of unsurpassed significance. As you close that particular slide with me, we have certainly given discussion about the communion of Christ's body and blood as a reminder certainly of the Lord's Supper today and every Lord's Day. To say that it's a privilege is an understatement. To say that it's an honor is an understatement. The blood of Christ was perfect, blemishless, and ideal. And you and I have the opportunity to participate in a memorial in which we commune with one another and we commune with the Lord. If your life or mine is not such that upon our examination we can partake of it in a way that would be befitting of these passages... Isn't it true? We are, we are urged to examine ourselves. We just read that in verse 28. Upon our ex ex examination, if you or I today need to make some changes to make it right so that we can partake of that in the proper way, may we do it at once. May we not hesitate in the slightest. 
May I say, though, that if you've never entered in communion with the Lord, you've never obeyed the gospel initially, what better day today could there be than this one? We would be happy to encourage you to assist in, in that statement of obedience. You need to believe in Jesus to repent of your sins, to confess the greatness of His name as the Son of God and to be baptized for the remission of your sins. There's where the blood washes your sins away. Once you have submitted to that act, the Lord, you see, adds you to the church and you are able to walk with Him faithfully through life. If you stumble and reach a point where you're living in a habitual way that is not approved by God, you can change. You can make a redirection. You can come back to the Lord in repentance. Today, we'd be certainly very happy to encourage you in that way. And if you'll confess those errors and make repentance of them, the Lord has promised to forgive you. In that way, you too could again partake of the Lord's Supper in a way, perhaps different than what you've done for a long time. May the Lord's Supper to us be that lasting memorial of unsurpassed significance. This song of encouragement has been chosen. If right now we could be of some assistance, we want to do that without delay. While together we stand and while we sing.